Welcome to the Energy Mix. Barnaby Smeaton here. I'm joined by my co-host Andrew Crossland. Uh, how are you, Andrew? Very good. Looking forward to today's episode. Yeah, we've got a really, really super special guest today. Our guest is Tom Greatrex, who's Chief Executive of the Nuclear Industry Association. Um, how's things, Tom? Very good, thank you. Can't complain. It's a Monday. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very cloudy Monday in London as well. Um, that's November. So um, just to give our audience a little bit of a, a, an overview of Tom, Tom was formerly MP for Rutherglen and Hamilton West. Um, he was Shadow Energy Minister from 2011 to 2015. And he was the opposition's lead spokesman on nuclear energy, electricity market reform, smart grid and metering, carbon capture and storage, interconnection both onshore and offshore oil and gas. He also served as a member of the Energy Select Committee uh, and was a policy advisor in the Scotland office, including on energy. Um, he's been uh, an independent policy analyst working in the energy sector for a range of clients, a frequent media commentator on energy issues, and uh, has also worked in the NHS and in local government. Um, Tom, it's really such a, a, such a pleasure to have you on. I think um, nuclear energy has obviously been quite a hot topic the last, um, the last 18 months or so, especially with, um, with some decisions about Hinkley C. Um, I guess maybe we could, we could sort of introduce the topic by talking a little bit about sort of where nuclear energy sits in the UK. Um, in, in 2017, um, I'm not sure if you might want to maybe make some make some comments first up. Yeah, well, I mean, nuclear uh, electricity generated through um, through nuclear power stations is uh, and has been for a while now producing a bit more than a fifth of the electricity that we produce in the UK, um, or technically in Great Britain because there aren't any uh, nuclear power stations in, in Northern Ireland. Um, the percentages of, of obviously fluctuate depending on what the um, overall demand level is and I think um, at the moment or as of an hour ago I think it was about 15.7% when we had demand of 46 gigawatts so reasonably high demand on a on a um, cold cloudy yep. November day so at the point at which you would expect uh, there to be uh, less power that you can than you can get from a, a, you know more intermittent sources um, uh, particularly because it's not not all that windy today um, so, uh, you know, nuclear has its part to play in amongst the mix of those different technologies yep. and um, has done for a long period of time and I think um, we'll continue to need to if we're serious about having a system that is as close as we can get to uh, being decarbonised and we're going to need to do that if we're going to get anywhere near meeting our carbon commitments and that's the reason why I have had for a long time, long period of time, a uh, a view and a perspective that we are going to need nuclear for the future and it's uh, an industry and a source of power and a, uh, this has a history that it means it takes a long time to get things built. I mean once they're built yep. they generally last for a long time and yep. produce a lot of electricity but yep. the uh, unlike with very many other things the um, the uh, the more challenging aspect is the start yep. um, to some extent the end but the bit in the middle is yep. it pretty much um, works very very well and that's yep. the that's the record that we have in this country and um, but we've got a situation where we have our nuclear capacity now coming towards the end of its life yep. um, all but mm -hmm. one of the power stations by 2030 will have reached even an extended lifetime um, and so we need to be uh, serious about replacing that and yep. that's that's what I think is really important that we need to do because 
as the electricity demand is demand or the amount of uh, things that we use electricity for is likely to increase, even if depending on where you see demand going, I think we're going to need that power source yeah. along, with, along with all the others that we have in the mix at the moment. Yeah, so for our audience, um, there's currently 15 reactors operational in Great Britain um, and I believe about 18 gigawatts of new build is needed to come online by the 2020s. Well, it's by, it's by the end of the 2020s, yeah. Uh, yeah. so around about 2030, which is when all but um, one of the existing power stations, all but Sizewell, yeah. uh, which was Sizewell B, which was the last one to be built, which was built in the, uh, well, it's a generation ago, late mid 90s was when it was yeah. uh, constructed. So all of the others um, that are currently producing that, the bulk of that 21% of the electricity will come to the end of their lives by 2030. Yeah. And that's after with some of them having had some life extensions. Yeah. It may be that it's possible to, you know, to extend a couple, some of those a couple couple of years more, but it's not something you can do another, you can get another no, 10 or 20 years yeah. out of because they, you know, the technology is aging and they're coming towards the end of their lives. Yeah. So that has the, been the impetus for uh, a new build program, yeah. um, which is the first time in the UK that that's been done for a generation. So mm. the first one of those projects, which is Hinkley, um, as you referred to, is uh, now a construction site, buildings yeah. underway with that, but there need to be more to come if we're going to, yeah. uh, I think, if we're going to get anywhere near me meeting those commitments that we've set ourselves. Yeah, so for our audience's benefit, if every one of those 18 gigawatts of new build um, was the same capacity as Hinkley, that would be six new Hinkley Cs. Um, so sort of, I think that segues into a question we, we yep. wanted to ask you about was, um, how ready you feel the UK is f for this build out and, and given um, given some of the difficulties that, that EPR projects in Europe have faced, are there things the UK can institute to help manage capex and schedule risk? Um, yeah, the well we haven't done it for a generation so yeah. the, the construction site in Somerset now which has about 2,000 people on it every day so it's, you know, it's I think sometimes people assume that it's something that's got passed through various decisions, but nothing is very much is happening. And that's, um, that's certainly not the case. If you ever, if you ever down there, you will see just how busy a site it is. So that is that is well underway now. Yep. It's been under construction for the best part of a year since yep. construction work really started. Um, but um, that has entailed building up a supply chain, which hasn't had to be there for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not to say there aren't companies uh, that have UK companies and parts of the supply chain that haven't had work on existing generation or in decommission or in other fields of energy because they have. Mm -hmm. But building up those skills and that capability is something which EDF have taken really, you know, the, the big part of doing with support through different things like the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre and various initiatives and, 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 um, uh, and programmes like um, manufacturing programmes and manufacturing support programmes that they've been that, that apply across lots of different sectors. Um, but it's the first time it's being done, so that means then the first one, you know, they have to do a lot of that work uh, ready for that project, which will then benefit subsequent and future projects, yeah. even when they're up where they're different technologies, mm -hmm. as will be the case in the UK, because the likelihood is that the uh, the next, the second is is a good chance that will be the, the project, uh, Horizon Project in North Wales, which is a yeah. different yeah. reactor design. But in terms of learning from the other EPRs, we have, are in a situation now where... Um, in probably a little over a year's time, all of the all of the other EPRs under construction will be generating electricity. Yeah. 
Um, and what's interesting is when you look at the uh, Okaluta in Finland isn't uh, an EDF project, although it's a, an EPR, it's not an EDF project. So um, the, uh, the most of the learning relevant to uh, uh, Hinkley has come from Flamanville yep. and to some extent from Taishan. But if you look at the way they've started, Okaluta was started first, Flamanville second, Taishan third. It looks like they'll finish in reverse order. Okay. Which gives you a pretty good indication, actually, yeah. that although that there are different factors, obviously, in terms of uh, the different consortium and, and, and issues that have been in France, particularly labour issues at a very early stage of it, for some things, but it does give you, you know, a high level in indication that, um, you know, the the earlier ones have taken the longest, and the ones that started last are probably going to finish first. Yeah. Um, and you know there are some differences in relation to the way the project's being programmed and, and managed through uh, the EDF have, um, because they have come from things they've learned from Flamerville, mm -hmm. and there are things that have um, uh, that have come from the approach that's been taken in Taishan that are being, uh, you know, the, the benefits of those are being put into the Hinkley construction. Yeah. Uh, but these are all EPRs are they are reactor designs that are built on site, so they're. And it's a horrible term, but you know the terminology is stick build rather than modular construction. I think the real um, exciting potential benefit in the future is for uh, more modular-based construction because yeah. that really has a significant impact on helping both yeah. reduce your schedule and manage your capex and have yeah. uh, less uh, less risk associated because you're you're doing something that you know exactly how you're doing it yeah. before you even take it to the site. And that's not what's happening with an EPR because of the nature of the yeah. nature of the reactor design. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was the that that was something that structural engineering pioneered in the mid nineteenth century. It was the big debate that Eiffel had with all of his peers was was uh, have artisans on site or or do it Meccano style yeah. and, and yeah. have everything machined and fit um, off site. So um, it's it's uh, it certainly makes sense. Did you have a, a question, Andrew? Yeah, sorry, I was I was really interested listening to that. You were saying about the last plant coming online being Sizewell in the 90s. Yeah. And Hinkley due to come online in the next, what, seven years? Is that right? Uh, uh, um, 20, late 2025, I think, the first late of the two reactors, I think, is due to be, yeah. Okay. At the moment, so, I mean, you know, that's so the... seven, eight years then. Yeah. So yeah. There's, there's been a big gap, hasn't there, between... Um, I mean, so my, my background's in railways where I, I saw the impact of this so there's, there's a gap between the last plant being built and the new one first being proposed then put into design then now put into construction do you think that's had a sort of quite a major impact on the industry that that, that gap and that uncertainty yeah well the, during that period of time um, the you know until 2000 and I think it was about 2007 I think when the then Prime Minister, maybe 2006, made a speech at a conference where they sort of put nuclear back into the mix for consideration. You know, for a long period before that, so from when Sizewell started generating for a good 10, 12 years, the suggestion mm -hmm. was he wouldn't be building anymore. So, um, and even from the point at which it was uh, envisaged again, um, you know, the the process to get to a point where you actually start building has taken quite a long, long period of time. So, when you think about that, you know a lot of that, the skills, the um, the capability, and the capacity in that supply chain has diminished over that time. As naturally it would if you yeah. stop doing things, yeah. um, right. and that is, you know, it's not been something that hasn't been 
understood from the start, and it is something where there has been, you know, uh, EDF have put a lot of effort into it. There's been a lot of government, uh, various different programs that have been funded in different ways or initiatives to try to develop that. The LEPs, particularly in the southwest, have have done that, and in some ways, the the benefits of that I think are going to be felt in future projects as well. Not just the benefits of the supply chain that has now been, I suppose, or in the process of being um, uh, reconstituted for the first project that can then potentially transfer to other projects or, or benefit from that, but also actually the um, the ways in which some of that has been done. Uh, so, for example, things that aren't anything to do with nuclear. So, the issues around you've got big construction site, big workforce uh, on site. So, even things which might seem as uh, maybe um, trivial as as the catering process, for example, when you think about it, it's a it's a big e effort to be able to cater for that many people on site and yeah. the number that are going to be on peak at site. And the way that EDF have done that is they've done this thing called Somerset Larder, which is basically just getting lots of local supply chain food producing companies together as a consortium so they're not doing the traditional thing you do on a big construction site with a you know big outsource company but they so there's a much better local benefit felt yeah now that might seem quite a small thing but you can do you can see how you could do similar type of things in others in other sites and other communities where you like to be building new power stations because uh, with possibly the exception of Bradwell they tend to be in places which are not that close to um, major centers of population they tend to be for the reasons of for where they're sited reasonably remote um, and tend to be in outlying parts of the country and parts of the country that need an economic boost more um, more particularly than maybe you might need in the southeast of England and so for all those reasons you can see how you want to try to maximize the local content in the supply chain both in the bits that to do with construction the bits that to do with nuclear the bits that to do with nuclear is harder because of the specialism that's required but building up the supply chain for the first project will undoubtedly help in future projects as well. Yep. It's, in a way, it's, it's what you've been able to be to be seen if you look at the offshore wind experience, I'm not talking about the price so much, we'll come up, we may come on to that in a, in a while, but you know, looking at the UK content from where the starting point to where they've got to now, now it's significantly less than there is in uh, nuclear, but it's still, um, there's been a significant improvement as um, there's been a programme of work, programme of activity, which has meant that you know pits of the supply chain have been either able to locate as famously with Siemens in, in Hull in the UK, or they've other you know further down the supply chain companies have built up their capability and they've made the decision to make those investments because they know there's going to be a programme of work to commit to, yep. and that helps to drive that economic activity, which is you know a vital thing. I think sometimes that gets when you think about this in terms of you know, carbon in your mix or your electricity, ideal, idealised electricity systems or the pure economics of it, um, it doesn't get factored in as much as it, as it should do because we are in the process of having to, by whatever means we do it, effectively significantly renew a significant proportion of our electricity generation infrastructure. I just find it amazing that, that, I mean, I'm, I'm 31, I was born in 1986, and it's only in the last two years that a career in nuclear energy was really serious, as in a, a UK-based career. And that, to me, just, and, and it just strikes me that, you know, the UK was a, a pioneer in this, weren't we, in nuclear yeah. energy. And I've been through all the engineering degrees, I've done, the, I've done the PhD, and it's all through that period, and there was never a serious option for me to consider going into nuclear, and now there is. And it just strikes me as this amazing challenge for the industry, not just in, as you say, replacing all these 
these reactors that need to come down, but also really interesting, like building up a local workforce to do it and be able to then export that expertise abroad again. Is, is that is that fair, or have, have I missed no, something? I, mean, I think I, I would say that it maybe started slightly more than a couple of years ago, but it is relatively recent. I find this really interesting, and in that I spend a lot of time, as you can imagine, with um, uh, senior people in different companies that are part of the yeah. nuclear uh, supply chain, and you'll find um, and that there is uh, a group of people who are very experienced and have been around for a significant period of time, generally tend to be in some of those most senior positions. And then in the nuclear industry, the, more, the nuclear bits of some of these companies, there tends to be sort of a gap. And then um, there's quite a significant group of uh, what I would refer to as relatively young. I'm in, I'm, I'm in my early 40s, but you know people are at least 10 years younger than me. Um, but there's a, quite a significant and lively and engaged and very committed group of people, and there seems to be quite a lot of them. Um, yeah. The difficulty is the bit in the middle, um, and that's what comes from, uh, as you as you described, having uh, you know almost like a sunset industry um, in the period between uh, the decision being taken to um, to uh, go ahead with Sizewell because then there was the construction that happened, and then and all the things that happened in between that, and with Westinghouse, with BNFL, with uh, uh, the, the the different um, companies that have been split up or sold off in lots of different ways and they tend to happen, there tend to be lots of um, mergers, acquisitions and, and disposals across the whole of uh, this sort of wider engineering sector to the point now where we've had to, over a relatively short period of time, try to build that up to be ready to be able to do what we need to do. Um, I, I, would, I wouldn't downplay it in terms of the sense of it being um, uh, a challenge and it's a challenge that's a live challenge and a real challenge at the moment, but by the same token I wouldn't over emphasize it in the sense of it's not something I don't think you know that we're not it's not possible to be able to to address and to be able to uh, be able to uh, make uh, put right or to be able to get into that position to to achieve what we want to achieve uh, but that partly is, rests upon there being you know a program of work to happen beyond it because you're not going to build that supply chain up just for one yeah. project uh, no. and I think that's that's where it gets really interesting because that's where you can see what's happened in other industries where where you have got, or other bit, or even other bits of the same sector, where you've got a um, a program of activity that really helps to ensure that right level of investment happens in the in the people as well as the capability to be able to to, be able to deliver that's, to it. That's true for nuclear, for solar, for wind, yeah. for railway electrification. Where I used to work, you know, it, it's it's not it's not boom and bust. I don't think that's the right saying, but you can see that, that almost the peaks and troughs, I guess, of activity, yeah. and it it it's not just you know. Um, investment it's people who move around and you can lose them and, and certainly in the railway that I think that was one of the key reasons why electrification was so expensive that we hadn't done it since 92 in any kind of serious way and that's mm -hmm. why it failed and I, I really hope it doesn't happen in you know in your industry or in the solar industry or the storage industry which I, which I make my money in you know yeah um, so we going to talk about Hinkley a bit Bonnie yeah absolutely um, so I, I guess it's really the um, the du jour um, topic given given that um, construction's a year on. I guess sort of we're interested in asking some questions about um, the, the pricing and financing of, of, of Hinkley just I guess because 
one of the reasons we started the podcast is that the energy industry is, is awash with very polarized opinions and, mm. and often a lot of misinformation. Yep. Um, one of the first things that, that came to mind was really um, uh, whether the, the, the strike price for, for Hinkley wraps in everything like decommissioning costs, end of life, all of those sorts of things. Is that, I just wondered if you could, you could talk to that. Yeah, so um, the, the strike price for Hinkley and the strike price for any future nuclear projects are uh, to cover um, the, effectively the, the big capital outlay at the start, which is yeah. the construction, um, and the bit where you don't get any revenue at the end, which is the decommissioning. Yeah. And it's uh, the way in which that's, um, uh, the CFDs are structured for nuclear to cover the decommissioning yeah. as well as the construction. And I think yeah. that's sometimes something that isn't, isn't necessarily um, understood or, or appreciated. Um, I guess probably because they don't really make too much noise about that. Because actually, when the decommissioning with Hinkley, for example, on the basis that it it, it, it runs for its lifetime, is like to happen, that's 60, 70, 80 years into the future. So it's a long time into yeah. the future. But the other thing that is worth remembering this because people make a comparison. They look at the overall what what used to be deck and that bit of the base budget, and you know big chunk of it is nuclear decommissioning yeah. authority spending. That's what happens if you don't plan yeah. decommissioning, both not just in the financing of it, but also in the design of your reactors. Yeah. And that's the big difference with this round. It's not only in the financing through the CFD that um, incorporates ensuring that that's paid for, it's also that the decommissioning is designed into the process of the of the construction and the, and the reactors in a way that wasn't yeah. done in the past. Yeah. I think it's actually not just something that historically the nuclear industry has faced, it's also in other industries. Yeah. For example, in Australia, wind projects almost always took perhaps a, an unjustified position that the scrap value of all of the turbine towers would completely cover the decommissioning cost, which um, right. nobody has yet really <laughs> fully tested. Yeah, that I think this is, good, this is so. going to be really interesting in. Um, a few years' time, in terms of some of the some of the big wind uh, projects in the UK, as they get to the ones that get towards the end of their lives first, about what actually happens there. Yeah. I mean, I know from dealing with oil and gas decommissioning and North Sea oil and gas decommissioning, and um, uh, you know the sort of hoops that have been um, constructed and tax release and everything else to try to what well, do two things? One is to continue to get as much as you could out of different uh, different fields but also uh, you know so that whoever ends up owning those assets what the liabilities they're left with yeah and you know potentially having a, a situation which is um, not ideal for uh, for the environment at all if you're just left with something that people end up effectively abandoning because they go out of business at that yeah. point and either yeah. the government's left to do it or no one does it yeah so I think I think yeah in relation to other technologies and I, th I think offshore wind is more interesting I suppose really in this particularly some of those you know those uh, deeper projects with bigger foundations and everything else you know when we're talking in about I don't know maybe a twenty years time or whatever it is what the time yeah. in which some of those have to be dealt with how that happens yeah yeah exactly well, um, what's what's the what's the recourse then for um, decommissioning costs being much higher than than they're planned to be. So what happens if in, whenever Hinkley decommissioned, we find out it costs three times as much as we thought to, to decommission it? Is there a recourse in the contract? Um, so the, the, the what, what the um, operator has to do is as they're receiving revenue, 
um, for the electricity at the at the, um, uh, the sort of underwritten rate that a certain proportion of that has to be effectively um, set aside for covering um, decommissioning, but the liabilities remain with the operator. So it would be um, so it'd be EDF if EDF is the operator for the lifetime, it's EDF's responsibility in terms of the decommissioning. So it's not the same as the uh, current uh, decommissioning activity where that was all owned by the state but there was nothing put aside effectively. Um, right. or, or the same as the existing generation fleet which um, money did have to be set, set aside in nuclear liabilities fund to, um, to cover the cost of that. So it's not a, it's not an additional cost on the taxpayer or the or the state, um, but it would uh, if there was additional cost, it'd be the responsibility of of that operator. So in the case of, say for example, Hinkley, it would be EDF's responsibility. Uh, but what they have to do is that from the start of receiving any revenue for any electricity generated, a proportion of that has to be set aside. So there is um, a fund that is there to uh, undertake that decommissioning work, and so there's a um, there's some uh, certainty about there being that funding there rather than a, you know just a complete black hole which is I think um, I wasn't really involved in the uh, well I wasn't at all involved in the in the way that bit of the policy was um, was designed but I think it was partly uh, to provide assurance to people who will look at what's happened in the past well, we haven't done that at all um, and that is obviously not a very sensible thing when you've got a a piece of infrastructure whose cost comes mostly at the beginning and then a bit at the end and not significantly in the middle of that point and the point when it when it raises revenue then it makes sense to ensure that mechanisms are in place to uh, to cover the end as well as the, as well as the beginning and that's what it's designed to do and you know that's to me seems a perfectly logical and sensible thing to design into your policy framework interesting so uh, another another question which i think um we'd like to explore with you is is the loan guarantee mechanism for, for Hinkley. Um, yeah. I guess, uh, you know, the, the energy industry is full of, of tax relief and various subsidies and things. Um, could you could could you walk us through how the loan guarantee works for Hinkley? And, and well, it's, it's not being taken up. Yeah. So uh, I suppose it's the first thing. So it was, uh, as with a number of other large projects that effectively um, a guarantee was offered by um, uh, by the state to um, EDF to um, for Hinkley as it as I think it has done in a number of other projects that are not necessarily anything to do with with energy as well um, to help to get big infrastructure projects underway yeah. really um, but what's interesting about this is in, in relation to Hinkley it isn't something that EDF at least currently haven't mm -hmm. um, haven't decided to 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 use. I think technically it, it, it remains on the table up until uh, I can't remember the year actually up, up until a certain point, yep. at which is potentially available. Yeah. Uh, but I think because they've uh, chosen to to fund it through equity rather than debt, okay, then it isn't it isn't something that's been so that's, that's been um, been been called upon. Right, and it hasn't therefore lowered the the debt. Um, the debt rates, the the cost of debt. Fixing. No, because, because no it debt. because it hasn't been it hasn't been debt. taken up. But I yeah. think you know, if it, if it had have been, or if it is at some point in the future, then I suppose theoretically that would have that it yeah. would have that impact. Yeah. Okay. Um, just for our audience's benefit, I mean, I, I, the 
background to the question is really if if the project had some debt finance you you might expect that a loan guarantee would make that debt finance cheaper but given that it's equity finance project then um, that's really a, a non-starter um, I, th I think it would be sort of you touched on modular reactors previously I mm -hmm. guess it would be sort of interesting for us to talk about what your thoughts are on on the future of, of nuclear um, uh, could you could you talk through maybe some of the future technical trends that you see in nuclear? Maybe small versus large reactors, on-site versus yeah. off-site construction. I mean, I, I think um, I wouldn't characterise it as, as as small versus large so much as um, you know. I think they're they're quite complementary technologies potentially. I mean, with small reactors, they are um, the UK government has. Um, uh, launched a while ago a sort of a competition and I think in the next couple of weeks I suspect we're likely to get the outturn of the first part of that and their future approach in terms of developing small modular reactors in the future. There, you know, the potential benefit from small modular reactors comes um, really more from the modular than the small, Okay, um, I think, because you then are able to, uh, if you've got a, a program of activity internationally because it's an, potentially something that no one else has done before there's lots of interest in particularly in Canada and the and the US with different technologies that are are being explored but if you're able to off be able to offer a small modular technology um, to a global market then there's a very significant economic potential their export potential that comes with it but it's the modular construction or the modular uh, manufacture uh, that really en enables you to do what uh, you can see happening with um, large uh, large wind turbines, blades yeah. for example, you're doing a lot of the same thing and so you foster yeah. innovation and you drive down cost yeah. and you're working to a specification which is the same the whole time. And yeah. same with shipbuilding and various other things as well yeah. and modular construction works. Um, the, the other benefit uh, is that it's not necessarily that they're immediately cheaper in the sense of the cost of the uh, the plant, but they're easier to finance because mm. you've got to raise a small amount of money. That therefore has an impact on uh, what your cost of capital is, which mm -hmm. is which is a big issue with with larger projects. Um, and they are uh, potentially, or some designs um, are, are much more flexible, mm -hmm. um, which um, which I think um, also is also a benefit in that sort of wider low carbon mix that we're trying to. Uh, construct but that doesn't mean you're not necessarily going to need some big power stations as well so yeah. I think um, you know I think there's a there's a huge potential there but I wouldn't see it as displacing necessarily gigawatt scale reactors yeah. which is what we're in the process of building at the moment um, and uh, you know that's something which uh, as yet has been you know there are technologies that are there but they're not uh, anywhere near being commercially mm -hmm. available at the moment and there's mm -hmm. a significant bit work to do to be able to get them to there. Um, if they are, there's huge potential. That's not going to solve our problem that we've got for uh, for the you know the end point of next decade. Are these modular reactors um, typically fuel in, waste out, saturated steam out, or are they? I mean, are they are they therefore ganged together to feed a single or a couple of large steam turbines? The, well, there's um, there are, there are different. There are a range yep. of different technologies. I mean, one of the things with SMR is it covers a whole range of different okay. things. So you've got, you know, you've got um, PWRs, pressurized water reactors, like yep. Rolls-Royce type. You've got 
um, uh, reactor designs like the New Scale Design, which is a US company where um, effectively it's it's all self-contained. Yep. You know, you've got molten salt yep. reactors and fourth generation yep. um, different uh, technologies. There's a whole range, and you've got um, you've also got some like Prism reactor as well, which you might you know you might not call that an SMR, but you know in mm -hmm. terms of having a completely different impact in terms of. Yep. Uh, the fuel cycle. So I think that's one of the issues that the government has sort of been grappling with in this competition is they had a whole range of expressions of interest and it's quite hard to make a very simple comparison between different technologies because they yeah. they do different things or potentially do different things yeah. and you know it's just in the, the way you've asked the question you can see there are some of those that are potentially interesting, yeah. some are less developed, some are uh, have might have uh, advantages or, or, or features or characteristics that you want to try to incorporate. Um, uh, so there's a, there's a whole range of different technologies. There's not yeah. there's not one single sort of uh, I suppose design that comes through yep. with SMRs. Yep. Uh, and but what they share in common is that they well, obviously they're smaller, but they're also able to be constructed yep. uh, in a modular fashion. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly, it, it certainly makes sense. I, I worked for a couple of years in the solar thermal industry mm -hmm. and one of the challenges that industry had was all sorts of different um, construction engineering and, and geometry approaches. And uh, a, a big problem for some of the design configurations was they'd literally have a site with hundreds of kilometres of boiler tube which all had to be welded yeah. out in the field and it's yeah. one reason why you don't see many solar thermal plants <laughs> these days. Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, we, we're you know quite interested to, to talk in, in really broad terms about um, how nuclear globally, what your thoughts are on how it could better attract capital. Um, you know, the, the big sort of mega trends we see in the world is, is a shift of capital away from coal towards gas, towards solar, towards mm -hmm. wind. Um, is there a way nuclear can position itself in that competition for capital? Yeah, I, I was um, uh, with, uh, uh, I thought, what do they call themselves? They call themselves the invest, some of the representatives of the investor universe earlier on today actually talking about, actually it's more to do, it's more to do with uh, fusion. Yeah. Um, and what I find interesting about this is that, you know, people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and people like that, they are all, they've all got uh, interest and quite significant, you know, very high uh, number of investment in different nuclear uh, yeah. projects because they see and understand that, um, you know, the challenge that we face uh, as a, you know, across the world is immense mm -hmm. if we're going to really try to uh, seriously limit our uh, greenhouse gas emissions whilst being able to maintain and improve a quality of life that is means we're going to be really heavily reliant on electricity. Yeah. And that's why I get frustrated, and I do get quite frustrated with this sort of the, the really petty and pathetic sort of different technology versus technology fights that you sort of spats that you seem to get um, yeah. from different uh, uh, energy or electricity generating sources. Because I think, you know, mostly that is a, a product of, um, of people, I think, being so committed to the bit that they're involved in and an inability to be able to or not having the space or the scope to be able to sort of see the bigger picture sometimes yep. um, and it's you know I think it's just incredibly frustrating because what it presents is a, a picture to 
policy makers and the commentary and the wider world of just you know a load of ferrets fighting in a sack when that's what shouldn't be what it's what it shouldn't be about at all it should actually be about how we best calibrate the mix and yep. uh, and an understanding that if we're going to get where we need to get to the the thing we've got to try to reduce is reliance on fossil fuels and yep. you know when you see some so things, you, you wouldn't sit here tom and then and say nuclear is the answer to everything no. it's part of a mix alongside everything else yeah I, i've that's been my position long before i started doing this job and i Unless something really yeah. fundamentally changes, it will be in my position long after I've stopped doing this job. Um, so, you, so you would say the argument is not whether nuclear is part of the mix, whether how much of the mix it has in the future, I guess. Well, I, I think... And, and, and I, so that's the same argument. Well, I, I, no, I mean, I think I would characterise it as that, you know, the challenge that we have to meet and uh, that has been set for us by our you know, combination of our history, our behaviour, our industrial footprint and our... Uh, sort of catching up with uh, the reality of the consequences of all of that is how do we get to a point where we have uh, you know significant decarbonisation and the fact that a significant part of that is going to have to come firstly from the electricity generation uh, system and the consequence of tackling the other bits is that there is a likelihood that there will be more reliance on electricity and the distinction between energy and electricity diminishing over a relatively short period of time. Um, so it's how you best calibrate that mix rather than trying to have uh, you know, an argument about what different low-carbon technologies should be part of the mix. Because I, I don't see that any, there's any low-carbon technology that doesn't have a place in that mix. I mean, the bit that I suppose I'm most dubious about is probably you know, wood pellet biomass, and that's why I'm most dubious about that, because it is the bit which is the highest carbon of what is termed in you know as in, in in its broadest sense as renewable but um, isn't something you want to be overly reliant on but actually it's better than it's better than coal and better than gas if you're trying to deal with them um, you know how you have your how you, yes. you you know meet your peaking capacity demands um, and I don't see that you know demand management technology and storage technology uh, does anything to diminish the need for there to be that that broader portfolio of, uh, of sources and I wouldn't want to be overly reliant on storage technology um, either given you know how far the technology still has to come in terms of the uh, longevity of the of the uh, of the ability to be able to store the power and also some of the inputs that come into into producing batteries as well there's a whole range of different issues here that suggest to me that it isn't about one technology versus another it's actually about you know using all of those low carbon technologies to get to that end point that we're trying to get to and not underestimating the scale of that challenge because I think it's actually a huge challenge in the UK let alone uh, across the world sorry but I've got them to my soapbox now and I can't remember no, it's good. I mean, as, as a storage engineer I should probably like you know, someone who's you know, been in that for years I should dive in and defend batteries to the end but I think I think you're right I think you know, thinking of, you know, we very clearly agree on there being an energy mix in terms of nuclear alongside solar, wind, perhaps wood, you know, wood pellets. But, you know, you've got to include in that, I think, the flexible the flexibility technology. So storage yeah. is one of them, um, electric vehicles is one of them, potentially hydrogen, etc. And it's, I think the one interesting thing is that, you know, we all understand the merits of nuclear, but it's inherently inflexible. I, you know, you, you turn it on, you don't ever want to turn it off. Is that that's a fair argument, isn't it? And we had this sort of closing thing that 
going forward over the next 20-30 years with electric vehicles and batteries coming in there's going to be a lot more flexibility in the system and do you think that that's a threat or an opportunity for nuclear or is, is that kind of a bit of an irrelevant question? Um, well I think you know in terms of large-scale nuclear then yes the, they work most efficiently by running all of the time um, but I, I see you know storage as being something which storage technology uh, with nuclear as well as with more intermittent renewables are is a, is a combination that helps minimize your need for peaking capacity mm. and that's the bit which is the highest carbon bit at the moment so mm. um, you know I don't I don't see you know storage as being uh, a threat to nuclear um, I see storage technology as being something which helps to you know to be able to use all of your different low carbon generated power in in a way that tries to meet demand more closely than it does at the moment and you know if I was in, into the, involved in this in a, any sort of aspect of the uh, electricity generation sort of um, uh, system the bit I'd be most worried about I think you know I wouldn't be worried if I was in coal because you know where we're going with coal and have been you know despite we've been using a, quite a bit in the last couple of weeks but you know broadly we're going towards that point where we don't use very much coal anymore and you know none at all hopefully in a in a relatively short period of time but i would be a bit concerned if i was if a lot of my portfolio was reliant on on peaking gas uh, technology mm-hmm. because uh with the right um uh developments in 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 in, in terms of the, the the capability and the the uh, maturity of battery technology it's peaking capacity you're going to need less of and that's a good thing because mm-hmm. that's the pit that's the highest carbon um, so I don't, you know, I don't see it as being, you know, this sort of idea that um, storage or or demand side technology means that you don't need any, uh, you don't need, well, first you don't need nuclear because I just think the scale of the amount of electricity we're going to need is significant. But secondly, that base load, this high idea, base load's a thing of the past, which I found really fascinating when I first started this 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 job that um, I gave evidence to a parliamentary select committee with Doug Parr from Greenpeace who sort of trotted out the sort of um, Steve Holiday quote on baseload being a thing of the past. And then I went and dug out this quote and found out the next sentence, which of course he didn't read out, which was basically saying exactly the opposite. So he was talking about actually the way in which people might, uh, you know, if you, if you have a combination of, um, if you have, uh, you know, solar panels on your roof, if you're in a situation where you're able to do that, then you know, your baseload, i.e. a household's baseload is different, but then he was making them exactly the, the sort of, the, the next sentence, the next point was that you were going to still going to need a significant amount of uh, available and dispatchable power to be able to use, uh, you know, to back up the system and to be able to meet the larger industrial demands and when other things don't fit together as well. I really honestly don't see how that has significantly changed, and I don't I don't see the um, development of, uh, of uh, those flexibility enabling um, technologies as being something that, that, that undermines or counteracts that at all. I went to a power conference on Friday and I had two really interesting takeaways from that. The first one was uh, an estimate that the power consumption of electric vehicles in the UK would be 35 terawatt hours by 2040. The second one, uh, second takeaway was uh, it was a charging company, it was Tesla, various people, they were all saying that their charging model was um, 80% of, of, of charging would be done um, at home or at work and would be done at a low rate, sort of passive background, 
which is baseload. Mm. Um, uh, so I thought it was really interesting and also on top of that everybody was saying that, that they're expecting the take up of electric vehicles in the UK to be much faster than anybody really expects. So I think in that background um, the baseload in the UK will only go up and I'm, I'm not sure if yeah. you disagree Andrew but um, well no no I, I think I think it's um the only thing ahead of us is lots of change and lots of uncertainty and, <laughs> and that's where it gets interesting but I, I've got a closing question for you um so I know you're a big Fulham fan are yeah. we more likely to see Fulham win the Premier League by 2030 or are we more likely to hit the carbon target of 100 grams of CO2 uh, per kilowatt hour and I don't want to put you on, on the spot with a difficult <laughs> question for you to answer. Did you say win the Premier League or be in the Premier League? <laughs> uh, go on, I'll, I, a run in Europe. I'll give you a run in Europe. A run in Europe. We've, well, we did that once um, in 2010. I can't see us doing that ever again, which is why I, I, um, okay. I, I missed my induction to Parliament by being at European final instead, because I thought that's never going to happen again. Um, no, I think, you know, I hope we meet our carbon targets, and I think we've got more chance of doing that than Fulham have of doing anything other than disappointing Fulham fans. Well, I had, a, I had a great. I'm a, I'm a Donny Rovers fan. I had a great time at Craven Cottage with their FA Cup, and uh, I got very, very drunk with some very kind <laughs> Fulham fans who buying me beers all day. It was great. We're nice people. <laughs> nice people. I think. Cool. I think. Um, I think the phrase that I'm going to take away from today is is, a, is ferrets fighting in a sack because I think that really accurately describes the state of energy policy in Australia at the moment. Mm. And has, <laughs> has been for the last few years. Um, well, look, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. Um, really exciting and, and great to, to, to dig into some next level of detail on these questions. Um, yeah, uh, I'd just like to thank thank you on behalf of um, uh, both of us for, for coming onto our podcast. No, thanks it's very much, pleasure. Thank you. Great. Um, well, we'll uh, we'll post um, we'll post a conversation on our LinkedIn group. So if, if anybody in the audience has got um, thoughts, questions, any links they'd like to share, please jump on. Otherwise, we will see you in a couple of weeks with our next episode. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye.